Okay, let's get started. So I appreciate everyone being here. Certainly, please raise your hand if you have anything you want to say at all. So this is the inaugural Revolution Cancer International Lucky Tune Board. My name is Bastin Gwili. I'll be one of your co-hosts. I'm joined by John Akraman, Subramanian, who will introduce himself in a moment, and Silim Barson Maskamani. And we are delighted to have you. We think we're going to do some incredible things with this tune board, things that people haven't seen before. So just a little introduction to me. You know, I think that people know me from LinkedIn. You can certainly check and see my background from there. I think it's probably just easier to tell you what I'm doing with my life right now. So I was fortunate enough recently to be offered numerous very high profile jobs, which I essentially elected to forego because I've, I've started two companies last year in the AI machine learning clinical trial protein, protein target identification space and some other things that we're doing. We intend to launch quarter one, 2023. That's Cancer Light and Cancer Clarity. We also just purchased 17,000 square feet worth of building here outside of Buffalo. We intend to build our own institute. We have Radiation Oncology Vault. There's been a vision in my head for the last decade. There's something I want to try and institute. And so we will be working on that, hopefully launch next year. I also am the national medical director for two ex-biotech trials. I do see patients full-time as a hemonc doctor. I consult for numerous companies, have two editorial series that you can see online and also advise numerous startups that I actually end up doing kind of for free, just out of the goodness of my heart. So I'm going to let Ram introduce himself. Go ahead, Ram. Thank you, Boston. I'm uh, Ram Subramanian. I'm a medical oncologist. I specialize primarily in uh, thoracic oncology, dealing with any cancers in the thoracic space, and also precision oncology. I have an interest in the omics. I currently serve as a uh, Director for Thoracic Oncology at Inalashar uh, Cancer Institute. Um, so looking forward to this uh, meeting. Uh, Basan has put together a, a real interesting uh, discussion today. So I'm glad to be a part of that. Good to be here. Thank you, Ram. Silim Barson. Thank you so much for all of the attendees to John over here. This is going to be one of the exciting meeting. So as a variant scientist, I'm also equally excited like you guys to attract this forum, basically. So this is not only joining bridge for the clinician to clinician. It is going to be a very big stage for all the three peoples, like pharma, clinician, as well as more importantly, the patients. This is the more exciting tumor board you will ever see in this one. So basic about myself, I'm Dr. Slumberson here. So variant scientist. I did my training from National University of Singapore. And then followed by, I was the head of genetic affairs from a small startup, Biot. Now I joined with the Roche as a personalized ecosystem partner. So where I need to work as a variant scientist for fellow clinicians to take the clinical decision for precision oncology. So that's a short summary. So equally excited. Over to you, Basim. Please take over. Thank you, Slim Barson. I appreciate that. So <clears throat> these are our disclosures and disclaimers. So you can see some of the things here. Just understand that these are our opinions today. Don't reflect any institution that we are affiliated with at all. So this is the agenda for today. We're going to do a brief overview. We're going to talk about the Daiichi Senkyo pipeline. We'll do the remarkable breast case that we have in store for you. And then we'll have concluding remarks. So this tumor board is really an experiment. It's been in my head for three years. It's an experiment at the interface of clotting worlds. What we wanna do is bring drug developers into the same form as clinical trialists, as clinical oncologists and precision medicine. We wanna be at that interface where all of these worlds, worlds collide because we think that that will help epitomize translational medicine, really move the field forward. 
you know, my fundamental metric as a person and as a physician is that every patient gets the same care I'd expect from my mom, dad, brother, sister, child. I'm tired of telling people that we have nothing we can offer them. I'm tired of watching people die. We want to basically try and move the needle here, try and askew incremental changes as important as it is, we're really going to focus on really trying to move the needle. In so doing, this really is a truly unprecedented molecular tumor board. We're going to be ideating at the level of the forest. You're going to see us go from tumor type to tumor type. I'm a general hematologist oncologist. I've done that on purpose. You're going to see me extrapolate across disciplines, I think, in a way that's relatively unique. But we're really going to try and be at the forest as we dissect the trees. This is an unbiased and institution agnostic molecular tumor board. We are not taking any money from any of our sponsors, including biopharmatrend.com, who is sponsoring this, by the way. They're tremendous. You should absolutely check them out. They do some amazing things. At the same time, this is an unbiased and institution agnostic consumer board. It is futuristic and unabashedly demanding. You're going to see us talk about what we think will be approved. You're going to see us talk about how we would sequence those therapies in the future. We're really thinking about five years from now, not just the present. And we really are going to play chess against cancer. If you go to the editorial series that I've been writing for biopharmatrend.com, you can actually see quite a bit that I've done. There's an article entitled Playing Chess Against Cancer that I really think epitomizes the thought process that all oncologists should have as we look at our patients and how to sequence molecular-based therapy in the context of other treatments, which you will see outlined today. We have some relatively unique offerings. You're going to see us employ this comet-based algorithm that I basically derived and put in that article I just discussed in the context of making patient-specific treatment maps, a process I called treatment cartography, a term I coined, I think, for the first time throughout the world. You'll see that in action today. In addition, we're going to review a pharmaceutical pipeline with, at every single one of these tumor boards. Again, we're not thinking just about the present. We're thinking about the future. Any of my friends who are MSLs, medical science liaisons for pharmaceutical companies, can tell you that when I talk to them, I'm always asking them to show me the pipeline, right? I can read the papers. I can see the data. I want to know what five years looks like from now. And so you can, you can talk to them and they'll tell you that I always want to know the pipeline. And so we think that by kind of informing people about companies' pipelines, they'll be able to ideate at the level of a forest, right? So even though they specialize, they'll be able to say, hey, wait a second, I can apply that drug to my specialty in a way they may not be able to if they're ignorant about what that drug, that pipeline really was. And by the way, I will say this, I think there's an incredible amount of talent at the medical science liaison level. I'm always impressed by them. And I think they're remarkable. We will have a segment where we illustrate oncologic unmet needs for drug developers. So we really are thinking about drug developers. We really are thinking about pharmaceutical companies. We will tell you where we think that you should position an asset that you're trying to bring to the clinic. We'll talk about where we think the weaknesses are in a particular tumor type. Today is breast cancer, but next time will be liver cancer. We'll do quite a bit there. We actually have that entire talk that's already done. I had to kind of push that off because this, this was already enough for one day. In addition, we're going to propose novel clinical trials, again, trying to provide value to pharmaceutical companies, trying to provide value to, to the, the uh, drug developers, trying to provide value to everyone in the room, really show people something they haven't seen before. There is no single person on the planet that will know everything we're about to talk about. We really do feel like we're epitomizing translational medicine. You're going to see pipelines and patients intertwined. Every time we talk about a pipeline, you're going to see a direct connection to the patient we talk about in that particular case. We're actually going to do two cases a day in the future, but you will see a direct connection between pipeline and patient. In addition, we're going to take a personalized approach to novel clinical trials. We're going to merge all of these worlds like we talked about, and we really will have drug developers, clinicians, pharmaceutical and variant scientists in the same room. We actually want to have drug developers on the panel as main co-hosts, so please, if you are among the people that want to be on the main panel, just let me know.
audience participation is absolutely encouraged. This is supposed to be a dialogue. It's supposed to be a discourse between all these different disciplines. We really want to move the needle. We think that if we can bring these different disciplines together, talking about patients, we can really ideate in ways that people haven't done before. So if you have clinical trials that you have as a company want people to be informed about, please raise your hand. Please, we'll elevate you to panelists and please talk. If you have drug development concerns, you want to teach us about why this particular protein is very difficult to target, we would more than welcome that. If you have treatment suggestions, you think there's something we're missing, please tell us. If you have precision medicine thoughts, please let us know. And at the end of this, when we talk about the case, the final treatment decision, the map that you will decide will be yours to decide that decide on. So you'll decide on the patient's final treatment map. And so it begins. So we all know that too many people are dying of cancer. You know, there's been times when I've been in the clinic where I've had 30 patients in my office, 17 of which have terminal cancer, right? And so it's it's annoying, it's problematic, it gets very frustrating, it's actually heartbreaking as a clinician, tired of telling people I don't have anything more we can do. But nearly 10 million people died of cancer worldwide in 2020. A third of these deaths are from tobacco, high BMI, alcohol, et cetera. HPV still causes 30% of cancers in low-income countries, and many stage four cancers, as everyone knows in this room, remain incurable. In fact, if you look at this blue, the blue shows that cancer is the number one killer in these countries, premature killer in all of these countries. And it will get worse. If you look at high development index countries, you can see that it's the cancer incidence is expected to increase by 32% in 2040. In the low um, development index countries, it's gonna be around 95%. So the solution. So I don't pretend to have the solution to this, but certainly it involves some of this, including risk factor reduction, popul health, population health cancer screening. And actually these are two articles that I wrote on bioformatron.com, really looking at cell-free DNA in the context of population health cancer screening. You know, Grail has a test called Gallery that they contend can look at 50 different cancers from a single vial of blood. And I actually talk about that in this article you can see on bioformature.com. But the bottom line is, I do think that that is going to be a reality in the future. I think a lot of companies, including Freenome, Natera, Garden Health, Exact Sciences, and Illumina slash Grail will be in this discipline. I think someday when we go to our primary care doctor, we will be getting an annual cancer screening test. I think that's going to happen. You can read these two articles if you want to get an overview of that. In addition, certainly the solution involves improved access to care. There's been a big push regarding diversity, as there should be. The low socioeconomic populations are not being treated properly, and so that needs to be addressed. There will be a huge component of precision medicine involved in the solution for our patients in the future and obviously novel therapeutics. And with that, we turn our attention to Diagesenko. So Diagesenko was remarkable in the sense that they provided me with their 275 slide deck. So I pulled a lot of their slides for this particular presentation. You're going to hear me talk about it. You're going to hear Ron talk about it as well. They couldn't be part of this presentation because we are talking to patients, so there are legality issues, but we thank them tremendously for their, their contribution in this context. So before we start, I'm going to put my business hat on. As people know, I have my MBA from the University of North Carolina, tremendous program for anyone who wants to look at MBA programs, please let me know and talk to you about UNC. But this is something that's taught at business schools throughout the country. So the idea is that on the x-axis here, you have relative market share, right? And so you can see that it kind of is in reverse, but you have high market share here and low market share here. And on the y-axis, you have market growth rates. So high market growth rate and low market growth rate. So when you're a pharmaceutical company or any company for that matter in your e-commerce, you have a product that you develop. And that initially starts as a question mark. It's a 
product that has low market share in presumably a high market growth rate market, right? You're not going to start a company and put your product in a low market growth rate arena. You want to have a high market growth rate. So typically you start as a question mark. Now the ideal scenario is that you get this tremendous data, just resounding data that turns your question mark into a star, where now you have high market share in a high market growth rate arena. Now, ultimately what happens is the market's gonna cool off. You can't be in a market that's always growing, that's impossible. And so when that happens, it eventually becomes a low market growth rate arena, but can still be a very sizable market. So you still wanna have high market share there. And that really is what a cash cow would entail. And so I can tell you like for reference, just to give you an example, if you look at Genentech as an example, Herceptin, Rituxin, Avastin, all incredible cash cows, drugs that have saved a lot of lives. Genentech deserves a tremendous amount of credit, but you can see that these cash cows have funded a lot of question marks that have ultimately become stars. And I think that they have a star on their hands in the form of mosinutuzumab that's in, gonna be approved probably in third line follicular lymphoma. I think that that will dominate the follicular lymphoma market in that context. So they definitely have a star on their hands. I think glufitimab, also a very good drug. You're going to hear about DLBCL, but they have competition with epicortimab, which is the GenMab drug. They're both CD20. Actually, all three of those drugs are CD20 bites. All three of those drugs are very promising. All three of them are likely to be stores. But the bottom line is, we're going to talk about drugs in this context. So this is ASCO this year. Everyone literally out of their seats for NHER2, which is Daiichi's prized asset, Trestuzumab, Druxtecan. So we're going to talk about HER2 for a moment. So HER2 belongs to the class of HER proteins. There's HER1, which is actually EGFR, HER2, HER3, and HER4. So HER2 typically activated through homodimerization or can form heterodimers with other members of the family, and then activates numerous pathways, including MAP kinase, PI3 kinase, phospholipase C, and JAK-STAT. Now, the bottom line is, this is a receptor tyrosine kinase like VEGFR, PDGFR, FGFR, FGF, FGF, yeah, FGFR, blah, blah, blah. So these are all, there's a ton of receptor tyrosine kinases. This is a very ubiquitous pathway, and we'll talk about it more in the future. Now, we always talk about key opinion leaders, and so I think it's important, sorry, skip the slide there. So I think it's important probably to know what my specific HER2 resume is, so a little background on that. So my dad is a PhD in biochemistry. He's been doing cancer research his whole life. He's actually head of the signal transduction group at Promega, has been since 1992. So the first time I saw a cancer cell was four years old, 42 years ago at the VA in Minneapolis. I spent most of my childhood in the lab. And so when I was 16, I actually developed a protein kinase assay at Promega. That was 26 years ago. That was subsequently patented and made, made Promega a considerable amount of money. I had three first author papers on protein kinases by the time I was 20. So whereas people kind of study signal transduction, I literally grew up with it. It was a part of me. It was my dad studied since I was four years old. But most pertinent to our discussion today was a paper I published in 2004. So my entire PhD from 2002 to 2025 was on HER2 and telomerase. And so this paper really looked at how HER2 upregulated H-TERT expression. Also that happened through RAS and RAF, but that was kind of something that I did for essentially three years. I studied this protein in the lab for essentially three years. Aside from that, in my postdoc, and we actually ordered the ACS postdoctoral fellowship for this work that I ended up not taking and leaving academia at that time, but I studied EGFR at that time. So you can see I have a lot of familiarity with this particular class of proteins. Not only that, by the way, I also do take, I've been taking care of patients with HER2 positive breast cancer, HER2 positive 
esophageal, gastric, and the like. For the last decade, I have a pretty big panel in that context right now. So when we talk about HER2, we talk about the classic paradigm for HER2 characterization. And what we typically do in the clinic, or I should say as pathologists, is we basically take the breast cancer specimen and we stain it with a HER2 antibody, right? And we do immunohistochemistry. And we give it a score of zero plus, one plus, two plus, three plus. It's slightly arbitrary, but the pathologists are experts in this arena. So if you're zero plus, essentially there's no staining, that's something you would see in this context. One plus looks like this, two plus like this, and three plus looks like this. Just basically increasing grades of stain. We also, if you're two plus, so sorry, so if you're zero plus or one plus, we classically said you were HER2 negative in the past. If you were HER2 three plus, we said that you were positive. If you were HER2 two plus, we then reflexed to something called fluorescent inside two hybridization, so FISH, where we would look at the copy number of HER2 in the cell. And so if you didn't have an increased number of HER2 gene copy, then you were considered HER2 negative. So you were two plus IHC, but FISH negative, then we called you HER2 negative. If you were HER2 IHC with FISH positive, you had multiple copies as is shown here in red of the HER2 gene, we said you were positive. So you were HER2 positive, sorry, two plus IHC plus FISH positive, we called you HER2 positive. You can see that here. So HER2 zero, one plus was HER2 negative, two plus FISH negative, HER2 negative, two plus FISH positive, HER2 positive, three plus HER2 positive. But things have changed. And so for a long time, people were looking at these people who were low HER2 positive. They were HER2 one plus by IHC, so here, or they were two plus by IHC and FISH negative as in these two diagrams here. And for a long time, there was no clinical relevance of those patient populations. So nobody really thought about it. We just said they were HER2 negative. It was a binary process. You were either negative or you were positive. Well, NHER2 changed all of that this year and we'll show that in a minute. And so now we think of patients as HER2 negative, low HER2 positive or HER2 positive. And the low HER2 positive people now are the ones that are HER2 one plus by IHC. So this person here would no longer be HER2 negative or they are HER2 positive by IHC and FISH negative. So this person here would no longer be HER2 negative. They would now be described as low HER2 positive. This is important because now you capture an additional 55% of breast cancer patients who fell into those two classes of being one plus by IHC or two plus IHC and FISH negative. So this opened up the world of therapeutics for those individuals. Enter NHER2. So NHER2 is a conjugated antibody. You have trastuzumab conjugated to the darustecan, which is a topoisomerase one inhibitor. Essentially the way it works is it binds to, binds to HER2 on the surface. It's internalized. You basically release darustecan, which can then go into the nucleus and negatively impact topoisomerase one. It can also diffuse across the cell and affect adjacent cells. And so this was a true revelation. And this was the landmark study that was presented at ASCO that got everyone out of their chairs. You can see here that trastuzumab can in patients who had stage four hormone receptor positive, low HER2 positive disease in third line, basically treated with trastuzumab can versus dealer's choice, so physician's choice. They found that there was a significant extension of median progression free survival. So you can see that in this blue line relative to the black, essentially median PFS went from 5.4 months to 10.1. Coinciding with that was a significant increase in median overall survival, which was nice to see that PFS benefit translate into overall survival benefit. 
basically increasing overall survival from 17.5 months to 23.9 months. So that was a remarkable response. And you can see that that's why people really got out of their seats because this drug really did make history because now instead of me characterizing a patient on my note as stage four ER, PR positive, HER2 negative, grade one invasive ductal cancer, blah, blah, blah. I had now have to say, this is a stage four patient who's ER, PR positive, low HER2 positive, and that has a major impact on their treatment. But I will say that NHER2 is no stranger to remarkable data. This is a paper that was published that looked at NHER2 versus TDM1 in second line metastatic HER2, classically HER2 positive disease. And you can see this profound increase in median progression-free survival. Interesting about this is that this did not translate into overall survival benefit, at least not yet, which is a little bit striking. We're seeing some of that happen throughout the field where you get this big increase in progression-free survival, but you're not seeing it translate into overall survival. Most recently, you can see ibrutinib added to BR in the SHINE trial, 2.3 year extension of median progression-free survival in mantle cell lymphoma, but not translating into overall survival. Also some data regarding Ibrance in, in stage four breast cancer, which we'll talk about in a moment, showing kind of similar results. It's a little bit peculiar. At the same time though, there's no question this is a tremendous drug. It is now firmly planted in second line stage four HER2 positive disease. But I will say one thing here. This wasn't just resounding data because of this marked progression of median progression-free survival. It was also remarkable because TDM1 is a very good drug. So sometimes you know, the standard of care when we look at these studies is, is really not that great. TDM1 is a phenomenal drug. It saved a lot of lives. Genentech did a tremendous thing with TDM1. And it certainly has a place in HER2 positive disease. It's absolutely not gone. We're still using the adjuvant setting in patients who don't have a pathologic CR when they get neoadjuvant therapy. But at the same time, what was really incredible about this trial wasn't just this huge PFS benefit, but was because it was compared to an incredible drug. So very clearly, NHER2 is a pharmaceutical star. They went from a question mark to a star, not in this, not only in the sense that they were going to have a huge amount of market share, they created an entirely new market, right? Low HER2 did not exist as a market. They now are the only people in a market that's going to rapidly increase 55% of breast cancer patients, and they are going to dominate that market. Hey, Blossom, are you still there? I think you got disconnected and is coming back. Yes, Dr. Ron. So, yeah. So, I think he'll be back. So, in the meantime, if you have something to discuss. No, no, no. Let him, I think he's joining. So, let's okay. give him a couple of minutes to join and then uh, we'll be sure. good. Sorry, that just, my one, I have two computers going at the same time. And so that just, just fell apart there. So one second, let me get back on here. So while you're doing that, Basim, what has been the ground level impact? I don't see breast cancer patients, but you do. What has been your experience now that you have uh, and her to available for these low her to positive patients? Well, to be clear, it's not FDA approved yet in that indication. So right. my expectations that will be, I do think it will be firmly planted into third line for patients who are stage four 
hormone receptor positive, low HER2 positive. So right. it's definitely going to be in third line. And I think people will routinely use it. But the reason I ask that question is, given the popularity of this agent, are patients asking you that question? Can I get it now? Are they eligible? Yeah, that's definitely happening. And so, you know, patients are asking about it. I think it's smart for them to ask about it. They should know about it. And so that's happening. Yeah, it's happening wrong. Good, good, good. Okay, can you see my screen now? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. So let me get back to this. Apologize for that. Okay, so we talked about how NHER2 is absolutely a store. It has a very high market share in a very high market growth rate arena. Now, with that said, though, nobody's going to just let them sit there and dominate this market. So there are a lot of HER2-related drugs. This is just a small sampling of all the different competitors that are trying to come for the HER2 space, not just low HER2, but HER2 space. You can see that these are the approved drugs. So you've got trastuzumab, pertuzumab, NHER2, TDM1, margituximab, so otherwise known as Margenza, lapatinib, otherwise known as Ticurb, neratinib, and tucatinib, relatively recent addition. And I put this in red because you're going to see this, I think, relatively soon. So trastuzumab, duocarmazine, just had data published, well, that came out relatively recently, where they basically were compared to either aribulin or navalbine or lapatinib, trastuzumab, soloda in the post-TDM1 setting. So this is irrespective of NHER2, NHER2 really not involved, and they showed a median PFS benefit that went from 4.9 to seven months with an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.83. And you can see now the FDA is really looking to see if they're gonna approve trastuzumab duocarmazine for HER2 positive breast cancer patients. And so we'll see what happens there. By the way, this is from Target Oncology, which is a phenomenal site. If you're not already reading Target Oncology, I think you absolutely should. But what I think is really fascinating is this particular slide here. Now I know this is a really busy slide. This actually comes from Wells Fargo and their investment branch. And this, this slide is incredible for a lot of reasons. And the reason it's incredible is because all of these different letters and numbers here, each constitute a different cellular therapy. So when we think about CAR-T, we think about Kimria, Yaskarta, Brianzi, Tacardis, Abecma, Carvicti. But what I think people don't realize is how many CAR-Ts are currently being studied. And it's not just CAR-Ts, right? It's CAR-NKT, it's CAR-myeloid, it's CAR-NK, it's autologous CAR-T. And then you look at the cellular therapy landscape in general, you have cytotoxic T lymphocytes, you've got tumor infiltrated lymphocytes. So this is actually a pretty remarkable discipline. And what's happening nowadays is just shocking when it comes to cellular therapy. It's absolutely astounding and it's awesome. And so if you look at this, by the way, if you look at these red arrows, these are all HER2 targeting cellular therapies. Not just that, but there are HER2 targeting bispecific T cell engagers. So I do think NHER2 is going to get some pressure. I think it's going to come from CAR T or bites, and I'm not exactly sure what will happen there, but certainly there's a lot of people trying to enter this market. So we talk about all these HER2 targeted therapies. We talk about trastuzumab duocarmazine. Let's assume for a moment it's going to get approved. Then I think, in my opinion, this is how I'm going to sequence HER2 targeted therapies at least for HER2 positive breast cancer. And we're not talking about NHER2 in the low HER2 population here, but you have TCHP followed by HP. I like TCHP more than THP. Some people just do THP, of course. Then NHER2, NHER2 then I, I typically do third line to catnib, Zolota, Herceptin, followed by TDM1. I think trastuzumab, duocarmazine, finds a place here, although the eye toxicity is something that will be an issue. 
and then margatoximab plus rivulin, something like that here. Now, even though I just mentioned all of that, of course, context matters. This is an article I wrote on biofortran.com called Quarterbacking a Patient's Care. I really think between this article and the chest article I wrote, those are basically the two articles that really should be a trainee handbook. Because in those two articles, I essentially teach fellows and residents and the like, not what to think, but how to think. I give them a foundation that they can really use their entire career in terms of oncology. So I think every fellow that should be required reading for every single fellow. With that said, when we talk about Diagy's pipeline, not only do they have NHER2, they have some phenomenal drugs. I'm gonna turn it over to Ram now and let him talk about that. Ram, you're on mute. Awesome, thank you. But I'm not able to control the slides at the moment. Okay. When you came back on, let me, okay, go ahead and I'll, I'll just control the slides for now. So, so put it in the uh, big screen mode, uh, presentation mode, I, mode, I think. Yeah, I'm coming. Just just go ahead, just go ahead and present and I'll just go ahead from here. Sure, thank you. So once again, thank you, Basim. Um, you know, that was uh, very insightful. And continuing on the topics of antibody drug conjugates and her to being one, uh, the other one that's, Getting a lot of attention is datapotamab deruxtecan, which is also uh, a Daichi ADC. And uh, of course, there are other ADCs in development, and we already know of one that's currently we are using in practice, which is sasituzumab uh, govitecan in breast cancer and bladder cancer. And so trope 2 which is the target protein here, is widely uh, expressed in a variety of solid tumors, including lung, breast, bladder, uh, and other uh, malignancies. And particularly the attraction towards trope 2 is because uh, it's primarily expressed on tumor cells, not on the normal cells, which uh, allows this to be a target specific to cancer. So uh, datapotamab or data DXD um, has this uh, three components, the one being the humanized uh, monoclonal antibody targeting trope 2, and the other is the topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, which is the deruxtecanorexatecan, which is connected um, with, uh, by a cleavable uh, linker. And uh, let's wait. Let's wait for Boston to, yep, there we go. So the, there's a cleavable linker and we saw something similar to this slide with NHER2. Again, the mechanism of action is um, the same with the topoisomerase inhibitor. Um, one of the things, ADCs have come a long way uh, by means of not only targeting the specific molecule, but also number of molecules of cytotoxic payload has gone up. In this case, it's one to eight. And uh, there is other interesting features such as, um, you know, short systemic half-life as well as tumor selective cleavable linker and also bystander anti-tumor effect. This is very interesting in the sense that it not only hits the cells that express probe two, but also the bystander tumor cells that don't um, express probe two. At the same time, we are able to avoid some of the systemic toxic effects of the chemotherapy agent. Now I have the slide control. So 
mechanism of action, uh, as we can see in this slide, it binds to trope 2. Um, and once it binds to trope 2, it's endocytosis and lysosomal degradation within the cell. And then it releases the payload into the cell, which causes DNA damage, which is what topisomerase uh, 1 inhibitors do and cause cell death. But at the same time, we have some of these uh, chemotherapy molecules that are attacking the bystander tumor cells that don't express trope 2. You can see the purple uh, little structures, which is trope 2, through which the antibody links and gets into the cell. Whereas here, it does direct cytotoxic activity by um, being just because it's in the neighborhood. It, 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 it's the bystander tumor cell. So where are we exploring uh, daratolumab? Uh, obviously, uh, in breast cancer, uh, both in um, hormone receptor positive, but HER2 negative breast cancer, as well as triple negative breast cancer. But the other tumor that we are paying a lot of attention to is non-small cell. In fact, across all lines, first to third line, in advanced stage non-small cell, datapodomab is being uh, explored, and it has shown some very promising activity that was presented in the last world lung. So this drug, um, we are going to hear a lot more as time goes on, and they're also exploring it in other solid tumors as well. And staying with the theme that Boston brought on about chasing a star, um, you know, as we already have Trodelvi or Sasituzumab we talked about, but it's a great drug, um, has its niche, uh, but as you can see, Datapodumab is very close, and then you have several others uh, that are at various stages of development. So this is an area that we can see a lot of action in the future uh, in terms of the number of drugs becoming available, different indications potentially uh, expanding. The last ADC that we're talking about today is patrituzumab, uh, and this is a fully humanized, or a, not humanized, human uh, anti-HER3 IG1 MAB. And similar to the other uh, ADCs, this also has the excitokan derivative payload with a tetrapeptide-based cleavage linker. And once again, they've optimized it to have a high payload um, or high drug to antibody ratio, uh, highly potent payload and uh, short half-life. And it's also the, the cleavage uh, linker, the cleavable linker is very specific to the tumor cell. And you have the bystander tumor anti-tumor effect as well. And it targets HER3. Now, HER3 is something that we haven't heard a lot about in the cancer world, but it is expanding significantly. And there are several areas where this could be uh, a potential uh, option for our patients in the future. Mechanism of action, this is very similar that we talked about. Same thing, binds to anti-HER3 expressing tumor cell, endocytos degraded in the lysosome and the chemotherapy molecules are released, the little pink dots here. But you also have the bystander uh, effect on the surrounding tumor cell, but at the same time, you hope to avoid some of the systemic adverse effects of the cytotoxic agent. So where is patritumab being studied? Once again, it's heavily in non-small cell, which is kind of what I do. And you can um, see these two uh, studies, Herthina Lung 1 and Herthina Lung 2. These particular Herthina Lung 1, we've already had uh, data presented. 
in patients who had uh, prior EGFR PKI and failed treatment, and then they get this drug, and it showed promising response rates and PFS. So patients who are EGFR mutation positive and are potentially resistant to the frontline EGFR PKI are being studied in this study. But they're also looking at non-EGFR mutant, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, as well as in the frontline in combination with osimertinib that's being explored, and obviously, of course, uh, with HER3 uh, positive breast cancer. One of the interesting things about HER3 is that it's, it has an inactive kinase. So in of itself, it can't homodimerize and uh, target uh, downstream uh, pathways uh, for proliferation, cell proliferation. Instead, it heterodimerizes, where you can see in this cartoon, where the HER3 is in green, and it heterodimerizes with uh, HER2. When, it, when heregulin, which is its ligand, binds to it, and that's how it drives uh, downstream pathway. Now, why is that important? For two reasons. One, even though it's kinase inactive, it's still a potent target because it heterodimerizes with HER2. And also we'll be uh, briefly talking about another MAB um, with a different mechanism of action uh, where it will make a little bit more sense. So this is where we are talking about other HER3 inhibitors. Um, we talked already about uh, patritumab. Uh, which is an ADC or an antibody drug conjugate. But MABs, obviously, we are not just developing uh, ADCs or just plain MABs like rituximab. We do have some of those, like there is this uh, ISU-104, uh, which is a fully human specific to anti-HER3 antibody. That's it, no uh, cytotoxic payload. But xenocotuzumab is a bispecific antibody that targets both HER2 and HER3. So slightly different mechanism because it binds with both HER2 and HER3, it tries to uh, prevent the heterodimerization, prevents the activation by the ligand. And on top of that, uh, it allows recognition of these uh, antibody-bound cells uh, by macrophages and natural killer cells, which can then trigger antibody drug, I'm sorry, um, antibody-dependent uh, cell-mediated cytotoxic uh, cell death. So ADCC pathway is activated. So this drug, we have early data again that has shown benefit, uh, particularly in patients who are positive for NRG1 fusion. The neuregulin, and neuregulin is same as heregulin, which is the ligand that drives HER3, and NRG1 fusions, which were originally discussed, uh, discovered in non-small cell, uh, but now we know it's a pan-tumor fusion. It's not just restricted to non-small cell. It's found in a variety of tumors, including pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma is rare. You know, most of the cases it's one to 2% or even less, but that's an expanding indication and xenocotuzumab has shown very promising activity in the area of targeting NRG1 fusions. So it may go beyond breast cancer and lung cancer here. So other agents here, you can see a whole list of agents. Uh, that are being looked at, uh, at least the top two, quizartanib, um, interesting, it's a FLT3 inhibitor, but um, it was given conditional approval, but the FDA has um, put a hold on it. Um, so it's back to the drawing board for this drug. Valimetostat, an interesting drug, EZH12 inhibitor. EZH1 is actually either mutated or highly expressed in a variety of solid tumors. But as you can see right now, they're not exploring it in solid tumors. It's primarily in heme malignancies. But 
likely to expand, hopefully will expand because we know that it's an important um, cancer mutation that's essential for several uh, tumor survival pathways. But how exactly to target that will these types of EZH2 inhibitors would be the way to go, go about it remains to be seen. And then you have a variety of antibody drug conjugates that are in development, uh, particularly for solid tumors. And the targets are not just HER2, HER3, and TROP2. We have Nectin4, we have CEA. Um, that's all showing uh, promise. And I think uh, we had some data presented in ASCO this year, and hopefully some of that will have more detail in the coming uh, few years. So actually, I will say a couple of things there, Ram, just in terms of all of that. Just one second. So, you know, the quasartinib data, actually, they just published data in first line looking at 7 plus 3 plus minus quasartinib in FLT3 ITD mutated AML. That data was actually remarkable. I actually thought this drug would get approved before giltritinib did. You know, giltritinib is a tremendous drug. I thought it would be approved before giltritinib, but giltritinib beat them to the punch. But that first line data, I think, will hopefully get quasartinib over the hump and get it approved. The Velmetastat data that I've seen in T-cell lymphoma is also remarkable. My expectations that that drug will get through in T-cell lymphoma, I do like it very much. My There's something interesting that happened this week with B7H3 targeting. Micro, microgenics has a drug that they were testing in phase two head and neck cancer stage four, and they actually stopped the trial it was targeting B7H3 because they had seven deaths that they didn't fully anticipate, six of which they thought were unrelated, but they actually stopped that trial. So it's interesting to see that. I wonder what's going to happen with B7H3. GARP is, you know, you know, interesting. A lot of people are targeting GARP now. Cadherin 6 also interesting. Men and a lot of people have men inhibitors and a lot of people have MUC1 inhibitors. But I do think this is a remarkable pipeline. I think before we move on, the last comment I will make, which I probably should have talked about earlier, is I do want to show all the different things that NHER2 is currently being tested in. And so if you look at NHER2, you can see it's being tested in a number of different disciplines. So first through third line gastric, already approved in second line gastric. It's being tested in third line colorectal. Be aware that Tucatinib had phenomenal data with trastuzumab in second line colorectal cancer. I expect it to cross the finish line there. And then it's also being looked at in first and second line HER2 positive HER2 mutated, mutated non-small cell lung cancer and really overall solid tumors and metastatic bladder cancer. The last thing I'll say, Ram, and, and I want to get your opinion on this too, is I actually love Tridelvi for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. It's my favorite single agent for triple negative breast cancer. And I think it's going to play a big role in lung cancer. Certainly it's already proven in neurothelial. What's your opinion regarding lung cancer in, in the trope 2 inhibitors? What do you think is going to happen there? Um, I think it'll be driven by uh, trope 2 expression is one thought we have. So we may be selecting patients who have trope 2 expression. Uh, at least some of the early data from datapodumab is suggestive of that. Um, but at the same time, what's surprising is, uh, for example, uh, uh, even MHER2 or uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan is being explored in lung cancer for HER2 mutation positive disease. Therein, the protein expression doesn't matter. It's the mutation, the presence of activating mutation that matters. So one of the things that we are trying to understand, particularly with ADCs, is that what is the biomarker? It doesn't seem to be as simple as what we had done with uh, trastuzumab, where you had HER2 uh, 3+, plus by IHC, you're good, you're golden, or you had uh, fish positive, 
So that is going to be the challenge in figuring out how do you select your patients? Is it, and I don't think it's gonna be the same uh, for each ADC. So for example, we have another ADC that targets MET and their high MET expression matters. Uh, similarly, CEA seems to be the case from early data. HER2 though, HER2 expression doesn't matter. Trope 2, it seems to be a ubiquitous uh, sort of protein on uh, uh, in many of the non-squamous lung cancers. So it seems that you could give it to the vast majority of the patients. But as we go forward, as we get more data, you know, the initial response rates are good. But as we do larger studies, randomized studies, we'll be able to get a better understanding. Earlier studies always tend to be uh, more uh, sort of associated with higher response rates than what you would generally see at a later stage of study like phase three. So once we get to that point, we'll be able to narrow down who the uh, patient population is going to be. And that's what I think is going to be key uh, for that. Thank you, Ram. That's awesome. Okay, so we could stop here, but that what would be the fun in that? And so let's talk about the case. So we're presenting a case here, breast cancer patient, 84-year-old female, stage four, estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, low HER2, so she's IHC1+. She would have been characterized as HER2 negative in the past. Breast cancer who presented with marked left hip pain and inability to flex or extend at the hip due to pain. So you can see here, this is actually her imaging. So she has profound mass in the left pelvis. She also has a significant left pleural lesion. She has a malignant right pleural fusion, and she has the right breast tumor. So there's a significant tumor burden here. These are her actual images. This is a little bit unique to our tumor board. There's a lot of tumor boards throughout the country that don't actually show imaging, which is a problem, right? Because when you are trying to decide how to treat a patient, you can't treat them in a vacuum when you decide on what to do from a molecular profiling perspective. You need to know what the tumor burden is because you'll probably take a very different approach if they're stage four with a solitary lung lesion or stage four with widely diffuse disease. So looking at these images is important. We will try and present them every time we have them. So that's actually expressed in this article that I wrote on biofromatrend.com. Please read that if you're interested. With that said, here's her pathology. So we'll try and show pathology whenever we have it. You can see that this is the breast biopsy. You can see this is the malignant tumor here. And so pretty significant malignancy in this context. Actually, it was grade one, though, that you can see it's forming the nice ducts here. So it was a grade one tumor, but readily evident on breast biopsy. In addition, you can see that this is the lymph node. You can see the malignancy here, but it doesn't really pervade the capsule. Here's the intact capsule of the lymph node. The tumor widely expressed the estrogen receptors. You can see it was 99% positive by immune chemistry. You can see the staining here. It's 13% positive per, for the progesterone receptor. So you can see some staining here in terms of brown. It was characterized as HER2 1 plus. I think you could make an argument. Maybe this is 2 plus, but I'm not a pathologist. 1 plus sounds right to me. So it was low HER2. It had a KI of 67 and 9%, really looking at mitotic rates. So you can see the brown staining here. And ultimately, the, the final analysis was this was a stage four, ultimately just because she had diffuse disease, stage four, grade one, estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, low HER2, so new nomenclature, low HER2 invasive ductal cancer of the breast. Now, this was her molecular profile, and this is where we start to do some really fun things. This is where it gets exciting. So she had several PIK3CA mutations. She actually had five different PIK3CA mutations having never received therapy before. So this patient had never seen alpha which is a PIK3CA inhibitor. She had five separate mutations. 
She also had an AKT1L52R mutation, which we're going to talk about extensively, and an FGFR2L776 frame shift mutation. So very interesting profile. Very few patients have FGFR2 mutations that are breast cancer. And so I thought that was really unique. She was MSI stable. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that in, in the future. And she had a low tumor mutation burden. She had a PDL1 of zero. So now I turn it over to Sylvan Barson, who will talk about the importance of these different mutations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Basim. So before we start, right? So Dr. Basim and Dr. John Ram actually presented very nicely about the ADC. ADC is nothing but anti antibody drug conjugate. So if you look at the pipeline, so they are playing around with two things. One is antibody is keep on changing and the conjugate is keep on changing. And the molecule, majority of the molecule in the breast cancer we are talking about is the HER2 and HER3. But as a variant genome scientist, I'm asking the, the things, the breast cancer, will this will be sufficient? What else we can do more? Why we need to go for more? So if you look at any clinical trial response to the drug, right? It is going to be anywhere between 30 to 40%, somewhere even lower, sometimes even a little bit higher, but not more than 90% or 100% for any molecule. So which means that who is the patient and 100% respond to the particular treatment because the doctors are giving the treatment to the patient, hoping that it will work for the patient, right? So now, how the doctor will select which patient is going to work, which patient is not going to work. That's why the comprehensive genomic profile is going to come into the picture, right? So that the doctor as well as the patient themselves know what are the wide range of options are available in that particular treatment setting. In this case, it's a breast cancer, right? It's not only even though the patient is low HER2 positive, is there any other options are available for them? How best the option that Dr. Basim will discuss a little bit later. So now let's focus on this genomic profile report. What is the story it is trying to tell for us? And what is the story I can convey for the clinician to take the clinical decision, right? The first mutation, we were talking about the PIK3, Right. So the PIK3, PA3K signaling pathway, if you look at, it's uh, going through the AKT molecule and the AKT phosphorylation and going through the mTOR signaling pathway. And then both these molecules, PA3K, AKT, mTOR signaling pathway, all together, it's coming into the growth proliferation and cell proliferation in a much more passionate manner. Right. But if you look at this genomic report, it's having five different PA3K. So what is this five, three different PA3K mutation? and how each one is very important. So each mutation having clonal population. Clonal population means you cannot target just one population and in the future, the another population can evolve as a resistance. So if you look at this report, particularly this report, E453K, 453K, that is the highest clonal population. How to identify that? It's a variant allele frequency. If you look at that five different clonal mutation, and look at the variant allele frequency. There are five different variant allele frequencies are there. Among that one, you look at the 33% that belongs to E4453K. So which tells that that clonal population could be dominant population among the other PA3K subclonal population, which means we need to focus on that clone, flow, uh, clone which becomes the major clone to target, right? So next slide. I will go through that one in more detail. 
right? So the PA3K, what is its role? PA3K's role in the breast carcinoma, right? So if you look at the PA3K E453, it's playing a very important role in the cancer. And if you look at the 40% of the cancer, it belongs to PA3K mutation. And most importantly, the E453K representing the clonal population is the highest one. The mutation, it is located in the C2 domain. So when we look at the mutation, it's not just the mutation, we need to look at which domain of the gene is affected, whether because of that it's a loss of function or gain of function, that also we need to carefully look at that. Then only we can choose any treatment strategy for the particular patient, okay, right. So if you look at the PA3K E453K breast cancer carcinoma, as I mentioned earlier, it's present in the C2 domain. So the C2 domain, what it is controlling, whether it's activation mutation, inactivation mutation, based on that one, it's going to treatment change, right? So here it is an activation mutation. So which means that, as I mentioned earlier, the PA3K signaling pathway is going to overactivate it. So PA3K, AKT, MTOR, thereby it is going to increase the cell proliferation in the breast cancer. So if you look at the functional study, functional characteristic study of different PA3K mutation, earlier the hotspot mutation, all these are point mutations, very carefully look at the E453K mutation, the, the, part, the color over here, uh, you can see the orange color, that clearly the cell proliferation is started to get increased higher and higher, which means that the cell population is increasing through the proliferation. And also, if you look at the PA3K single mutation with multiple mutation, that's another story also we can derive from this one, right? So PA3K single mutation over here, the patient will survive longer. Whereas the PA3K multiple mutation, look at in the green color, the patient going to have shorter survival. So in this case, in this patient, the patient having PA3K multiple mutation. So it's even more very, very difficult to do the treatment. That's why we need to deep dive into this data to go for the further exact treatment, what kind of treatment will work best for the patient. So the second next mutation we are going to discuss about AKT1. L52R mutation, right? So if you look at the same signaling pathway again, PA3K molecule is mutated. Another downstream signaling molecule, which is AKT molecule. So that molecule is also getting mutated. So AKT molecule, if you look at that one, so L52R mutation, another clonal mutation, that percentage is, is very less. So even variant allele frequency is very less, but still this mutation also, we need to count into the picture how much it's really important, all those things. So AKT L52R mutation, what is the story it is going to tell for us? First thing, as I mentioned earlier, whether it's activation mutation or loss of function mutation, it's an activation mutation. So what activation it is going to do and whether it could be possibly resistance to the PA3K, which is upstream. So since already downstream is getting mutated, whether the downstream molecules need to be focused, all those things need to take in the decision. But if you look at the L52R mutation, which is in the pH domain. So because of this pH domain, the L52R mutation, you look at here, the protein, right? So it's getting phosphorylated. AKT molecule is getting phosphorylated in the T308. And 
ES473 location. And more importantly, the downstream signaling molecule is also going to get activated because of this phosphorylation. So AKT mutation is an activation mutation. It's a, it's a very good example over here. So phosphorylated. So phosphorylation is increased, started to increase when you compare to control, which is OIN type in the second column and compare with the fifth column. So the phosphorylation because of the L52 is increased, which means very clear indication it's an activation mutation. Now, because of this activation, what is the downstream it is going to control? All right. So it is going to control various signaling pathway, which is involved in, again, cell proliferation, like FOXO and other molecules going to get involved. So if you look at here, the breast cancer, AKT mutation is not very, like, uh, not very common, right? If you think that, no, it's not like that. The breast cancer, it's very common if you look at that. So, and also it's common in other cancers too, some of the things you can look at in detail. And uh, as I mentioned, the pH domain L52 are also in the higher portion. And if you look at the right side, the image, uh, the L52R mutation in the endometrial cancer, if they started to treat with capoversetinib, another AKT molecule inhibitor, you can look at the difference. The baseline, the tumor is how much the size bigger. And within six months of the treatment with CAP, how much the difference is. And to look at the tumor sizes started to shrink. Even though it's in the other cancer, when you take the molecular genomic profile-based decision, I'm very strongly feel that this patient also could possibly respond to the CAP treatment in the future. So these are the, some of the AKT fascinating clinical trials, CAP, IPA, and the EMK2206, all of them. And if you look at how this clinical trial is progressing, some of them are in phase one and some of them are in phase two, and some of the progression-free survival, all those things, you can look at more interesting data over here, right? So these are some of the exciting things. So I like to invite Dr. Basim to explain more about this one. So he will throw some of the lights over here. Dr. Basim, so you want to throw some of the lights about these clinical trials? No, I just think that, you know, it's important to know there's multiple AKT inhibitors. Trial. We're going to talk about capofazertib in a minute. So I think just finish up on FGFR too, and we'll move on. Sure. So the third mutation we are going to discuss about is FGFR2 mutation, L776 frame shift mutation. So there are different types of mutation can occur. So one of other type is the frame shift mutation. So according to the uh, FMI report about this mutation, not much information is even though available. It's an activation mutation. Okay. So which means that if we have any FGFR receptor to target therapies, then it may work for the patient. So FGFR, especially this particular mutation, it is going to be in the tyrosine kinase domain two, particularly. So whatever the molecule, it is going to interact with the tyrosine kinase domain two. For an example, jack molecule and other molecules could be also be possibly present. So those molecule is going to get affected. So because of that one, the cancer is going to cell proliferation and differentiation issues is going to come into the cell picture. And if you look at the variant allele frequency, it's a second most after the pic 3 right? So it's even though it's not very common mutation, the FGFR receptive mutation in breast cancer, but here is another dominant clone next to the PA3K. So once the PA3K response is over, maybe we need to start to think about this FGFR receptor 2 mutation to target the cancer treatment. So this is the mutation profile. If you look at that, this is the tyrosine kinase domain one and tyrosine kinase domain two. If you look at the mutation over here, we are talking about EL776 mutation. So it will be present in the tyrosine kinase domain two, 
So whatever the interacting molecules in the tyrosine kinase domain two will get affected because of the mutation, right? So these are the some of the exciting uh, inhibitors in the clinical trial. You can see over here a lot of trials with a lot of companies are focusing on. So this is going to be big big deal in the future for a lot of patients who are waiting for these molecules to be treated, basically. Thank you, Sohn Barson. So I appreciate that. In this one, I'd like to hand over, uh, hand over to Dr. Basin. Please take over. Thank you, Sohn Barson. That was tremendous. So I think what makes this tumor board really unique is we take a very systematic approach to using the molecular profiling data and then deriving a patient-specific treatment map for our cancer patients. And the way we do it is we use a, a comet algorithm that I actually published in this playing chess against cancer article. It's, there's nothing complicated about this, right? It's just a systematic way of looking at your options and then deriving a patient specific map that's optimal for the person in the room. So we look at conventional systemic therapies. We look at operational, so surgical options. We look at the molecular based options that Simon Barson just elucidated, which I will talk about in a moment. We look at everything else, really looking at local regional therapies. So radiation, Y9, yttrium 90s, radioembolization, things of that nature when it comes to liver cancer, carcinoid, things like that. And then we look at clinical trials. But this is the algorithm we're going to employ quite a bit when we look at how to derive a beautiful patient-specific treatment map. And for this, in this case, for this particular patient. And you can kind of see here that when we have patients with stage four terminal disease, we typically treat them with first-line therapy. And when they progress or they're intolerant, we go to second-line therapy and so on and so forth. And so if you've got various conventional options, you have various trials, various molecular, uh, molecular therapies you can use based on the molecular profile, and you have various local regional options, the question becomes, how do you sequence these therapies optimally? Now, there's a lot of people throughout the world saying they're precision medicine experts. Now, when I think about precision medicine expertise, I really think about clinical precision medicine and the ability to derive an optimal treatment map like this. The variant scientists like Silen Barson at Foundation Medicine or Tempest or Keras or Neogenomics or any of these Garden Health, any of these phenomenal facilities, they're telling you what the mutations are and they're telling you what treatments you can use. So there's no art in that. There's really no science in that. The art from a clinical precision medicine perspective is how do you take that molecular profile and derive this beautiful treatment sequence for a patient? And really, I think the best precision medicine experts in the world are able to do that across tumor types. I think they don't just do that in one tumor type like thoracic. They can say, oh, you're telling me about a cervical cancer patient. You're giving me this molecular profile. I understand that these are the conventional options. I know what these options are. And I'm going to give you a, a patient-specific treatment map given the disease, given the molecular profile. So in this particular case, though, when we look at the conventional options, we're going to break it down. We're going to break down each one of these different sorts of issues in this paradigm. So from a conventional treatment perspective, when we look at first line options, so remember we go first line, second line, third line, fourth line therapy, and so on and so forth. There's been times when I've actually given people 15 lines of therapy when they asked me at the beginning, the very first visit that I met them. But here's the first line options. We're really going to dissect the data here. So you can see that you can use a CDK4-6 inhibitor, cyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitor in first line. That's very common. That's what we do. There's three of them. There's pelvociclib, otherwise known as Ibrans. There's rivaciclib, otherwise known as Kiskali. And there's abemaciclib, otherwise known as Versenio. And you can combine that with an aromatase inhibitor, right? So Famara, Examestane, or Arimidex, right? Or you can combine it with a selective estrogen receptor degrader, so Facilex, and I didn't really include that here, just think of them as interchangeable. 
but you can basically use endocrine therapy plus your CDK4-6 inhibitor. In fact, that's what the consensus is. That's what we all do in first-line treatment of patients with stage four ER positive HER2 negative disease or low HER2 positive in this case. So you can see the data. Let's really look at the data here for a second, right? So when you look at Ibrance plus the AI, you can see that overall response rate was 55% versus 35%. Very similar when you look at Kiskali, very similar when you look at Vemiciclib, so Verzenia. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at median PFS, it's all really great. So 14 to 25 months roughly for essentially across the board. But what's really interesting, and this has actually been kind of a, a, a topic of debate recently among breast cancer doctors, is that you did not see an increase in median overall survival with Ibrantz and the AI, whereas you did with Kiskali. So people are starting to wonder now, whereas we used to think these drugs were interchangeable because they essentially targeted the same proteins, we now are starting to say, wait a second, are they different? Do they have different efficacies? Now, I'm not gonna talk about that today, but it is something that's important to just mention. So once you've progressed on first-line therapy, we then look at our second-line options. So Alpalisiv is a PIK3CA inhibitor, basically approved for patients with a PIK3CA mutation, which we see in 40% of metastatic breast cancer, right? So in this case, the patient has a PIK3CA mutation. She would, in theory, be eligible for Alpalisiv. So when you look at the data, overall response rate went from 13% to 27%. Median PFS went from 5.7 months to 11 months. Now, here's something that I think is interesting. People don't talk about. When you look at the confidence interval for this data, you can see that the confidence interval was seven and a half to 14.5 months for the combination treatment. And it was 3.7 to 7.4 months for Facilix alone. So if you just take the upper limit of the confidence interval for fulvestrin and the lower limit of the confidence interval for Alpalisa plus fulvestrin, you see they're pretty similar. So that's a little bit concerning. Now we all use this drug. We all use it for PIK3CA mutated cancer in second line, but just keep that in mind. The other treatment regimen people typically use is Everolimus plus Eximestine. So Everolimus is an mTOR inhibitor. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you can see that overall response rate really leaves a lot to be desired. So 1.7 months for Eximestine alone versus 1.7% for Eximestine alone versus 13% for Everolimus. Now, this is a regimen I don't typically use that much in the clinic. I'm biased against it. I don't really think it works that well. Now, a lot of my colleagues use it justifiably so. It's definitely NCCN consensus to use it in second line. I'm not a huge fan of this regimen. However, with that said, median PFS went from 3.2 to 7.8 months. I do think that this is an area of unmet need in oncology. I do think that many people could go head to head with this regimen and probably win. In third line, when you look at conventional treatment options, really it's chemotherapy for the most part, and they have about a 2015, say 20% response rate about a two to three year median overall survival and about a 2.2 to 8.5 month median PFS benefit. Okay, not great. There's like 15 to 20 different chemotherapies, probably more if you look at combinations. And really there's no sequence that's been decided on. We all kind of use them interchangeably. A lot of people like Aribulin, a lot of people like Zolota. It doesn't really matter. If you look at the expert consensus here, there's no real sequencing for chemotherapy. But I do fully expect NHER2 to now find its way into a patient like this who has low HER2 disease. We talked about the overall response rate going from 16 to 53%. We talked about the median PFS benefit being remarkable. We talked about the median overall survival benefit being remarkable. So I do think NHER2 will be firmly planted in third line stage four ER positive or, or PR and or PR positive low HER2 positive disease. So with those conventional options in mind, we now turn our attention to the operational part of this algorithm. 
and really looking at surgery. Well, there's no real role for surgery in this case, really not a huge role for surgery with respect to stage four disease in general. Then we look at the molecular-based options. So we already talked about PIK3C mutation. We have alpalisib, which inhibits the PIK3C mutated protein. And so we know that we could use alpalisib here. However, when you look at the pathway, look that when you look at the receptor kinase pathway, you can see that the PI3 kinase is here, PIK3CA, and that activates a number, basically activates a number of proteins that leads to AKT, right? So AKT activation then manifests with mTOR activation as like one of the different effectors. But the bottom line is you can see that there's a concern here. The AKT1 mutation, which is downstream of the PIK3CA mutation, suggests that if you inhibit the pathway at PIK3CA, you probably are not going to have the effect that you want because the pathway is already activated, constitutionally active from AKT. So my inclination here is that the PIK3C inhibitor is probably not a good choice, despite the fact you have five different PIK3C mutations. There are AKT inhibitors on trial, which we'll talk about in a minute. And now, as we talk about our options, we talked about second-line options, we know that you can use Everolimus, which is an mTOR inhibitor. So downstream of AKT, downstream of PIK3CA. So in this case, whereas I'm not a huge fan of this regimen, this is actually becoming an attractive option to really consider Everolimus in a patient who clearly has driving of this pathway. So one would consider the Everolimus plus fulvestrin, or it was our AI arm here. In addition, with the FGR2 mutation, you could consider using ertafitinib, pemigatinib, infogratinib off-label. These are already drugs approved. Ertafitinib's in really the urothelial space, pemigatinib, infogratinib, and cholangiocarcinoma. So then we turn our attention to local regional options. And really, for the most part, you're really just looking at palliative radiation because of this area here. So she would get palliative radiation, but really wouldn't affect anything else. And then you look at the trial options, right? So there's a lot of trial options here. There's 906 ongoing breast cancer trials for stage four disease. I looked at all of them. I'm not going to really go over them right now. There's not enough time. But there are many variations on a theme. There are a lot of different protacts in trial. A lot of people looking at oral selective estrogen degraders, including elikestrin, which is now up for FDA approval, which we'll talk about in a minute. So there's a lot of different drugs with novel mechanisms of action. There are, is a combination, NHER2, Capovazartib, which is an AKT inhibitor in trial. This is a very attractive trial for our patient, right? We know she's low HER2. We know NHER2 is excellent. And we know that she has an AKT, AKT mutation. So when you're looking at this, you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, this is a very appealing option for this patient. In addition, there are FGFR2, and like I said, AKT inhibitors in trial for breast cancer, so you can see them listed here, and there are many additional trials. We will, in the future, do a much more formal analysis of trials. We have presented, we actually have nine patients with liver cancer we're presenting at the next tumor board. That's already done. We didn't have time for that, but when I show you that stuff, it's going to be mind-blowing. I think you'll really appreciate that. Now, when we talk about capovazartib, I want to take one minute here. Capovazartib is an AKT inhibitor. When combined with fulvestrin versus fulvestrin alone in stage four hormone receptor positive HER2 negative patients, you can see that there's tremendous data of late. You can see median PFS went from 4.6 months to 12.8 months, suggesting a tremendous benefit here. Median overall survival was striking. And so this really becomes a very viable option as far as the trial is concerned, and hopefully will be approved at some point. So then when we look at treatment cartography, so now, now we put this all together and we make a patient-specific map. Here's all of the options that we outlined. And the question becomes, how do you sequence? What are you going to tell the patient their patient treatment map is going to be? Well, we're giving you three options here. We're going to basically ask you as a participant, 
to tell us what option you would use. And I think the poll like feature might not work right now, but just kind of in your head, think about this, maybe tell me at a later point, I'd love to hear it. But option one, you can basically use your CDK4-6 inhibitor plus your AI or whatever, your selective estrogen degrader, you can either do, you know, I like to do Ibrance plus Femora, you do Kiskali plus Femora, whatever here, and do radiation. So we kind of kept that as option one for all of the different treatment patterns that you would use, treatment maps. Option two, now this gets a little tricky. Do you want to do your NHER2 plus AKT inhibitor trial here? Or do you want to do Everolimus plus the AI? And so we kind of made three different options here. There's NHER2 and third line here with Everolimus kind of just kind of moving to third line here if you're going to use the trial. Then you got NHER2 here. You can either do FGFR2 inhibitor or your AKT inhibitor trial here and then chemotherapy after. So there's different options you can use. And so basically in the future, we'll have a poll where you will decide which of these options you would use. I'm going to just turn it over to Ram. Ram, which option would you use here? You might be on mute, Ram. Sorry, Basan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was on mute. So very interesting case. And I agree that, you know, standard of care is standard of care. So frontline going with the CDK46 inhibitor uh, and uh, AI makes sense. Plus the palliative radiation, given that big bone metastasis in, in the pelvis, I'm sure that's pretty quite painful uh, for this poor lady. Um, in terms of the second line option, what's most attractive to me is, you know, using trastuzumab, biruxtecan. Um, you know, um, I think if on a clinical trial with an AKT inhibitor, that sounds the most promising to me. So number two, uh, to me, is very interesting, I would say. And targeting the PI3 kinase pathway, uh, either uh, downstream uh, AKT inhibitors uh, has always been a bit challenging. And of course, uh, one of the more successful solid tumor uh, target has been breast cancer, which makes sense to use these options here and they're approved. But the multiple PI3 kinase mutations makes me worried about using a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And also the AKT inhibitor, I would take it with a pinch of salt. I would focus more on a clinical trial that offers AKT inhibitor than outside of a trial, simply because the variant allele frequency was only 1% for that AKT uh, gene mutation. So what that tells me is that that whole pathway has been somehow you know, damaged significantly with multiple mutations upstream and then uh, mutation AKT, which may not be present in all or the majority of the cancer clones. It's probably a minor clone involved there. And so that's my approach. I think number two makes sense. Everolimus, which is, of course, further downstream, would make sense here. But the toxicity is always a concern for these patients. And then FGFR2 inhibition, definitely on a clinical trial, given the uncertainty about the mutation's driver ability and the fact that uh, similar studies uh, have not shown benefit targeting FGFR2 mutations. Fusions, it's a different story. So on a clinical trial, yes. And then of course your tried and trusted uh, chemotherapy options come next. Um, let me ask you a question, Basim. Given that this patient had such a low um, P67, um, you know, what do you think the chemotherapy benefit here would be? 
I, I think it's going to be the same as it would be for any other case, right? I mean, I, I don't think that I would distinguish chemotherapy benefit based on KI67 here per se. You know, I think it's going to be anywhere from 10 to 20%, like all basically all chemo for the most part. I, I do agree with you. I like option two here quite a bit. You know, I think option one is a viable option also. And so, you know, it's just how do you sequence the AKT inhibitor with the FGFR trials? I think they're all really great options for this patient. I think she's going to live a very long time with all these options, I think, and her two really did quite a bit for us. But let's move on in the interest of time. So, you know, stay tuned. Elikestrant is actually already now look, being looked at by the FDA for approval. They submitted this. This is an oral selective estrogen switcher degrader. So it's basically fastlodexin oral form. So stay tuned on this. They're really looking at ESR1 mutated patients where they saw a median progression-free survival benefit of 1.9 months to 5.3 months. So just to really very quickly say, ESR1 mutations tend to confer resistance to endocrine therapy. This drug is very useful in that context. Roughly about you know, 7 to 55% is actually a broad number have this. In this trial, 48% of people had this mutation. So stay tuned on this data. You might see alakestrin improved. In terms of our area of unmet need feature, certainly I think that second-line metastatic hormone receptor HER2 negative breast cancer is still wide open. I think that there are significant concerns regarding everallness in this setting. I think if you're a drug company, I would very much look at this second-line setting with an overall response rate of 13% with respect to everallness. I guarantee you, well, I shouldn't guarantee it, but I'm very confident DIHE is looking at moving NHER2 into that second line setting as they should be. And we'll talk about that in a second. I think fourth line onward in this setting is basically low hanging fruit. Basically comparing to chemo, I think you can really get your drug approved in this context and probably have a fairly reasonable benefit. With that said, when we talk about the trials we'd like to see, so the this is actually the, the combination trial that NHER2 has right now, but some clinical trials we'd like to see in the future. This is actually not as great as the liver trials we're gonna have in the future, but this is a nice feature I think we're gonna have throughout these tumor boards, we would love to see NHER2 plus fulvestrant versus everolimus plus fulvestrant in second line. We would love to see NHER2 displace everolimus in second line. At least I would very much like that. I think that, that DIHE is actually moving towards that. It would be interesting to see alpalisib plus fulvestrant plus minus NHER2 for second line. I don't think there's any real incentive for DIHE to do that. I don't actually think that that would be very smart, but certainly would be interesting. I think alpalisib plus fulvestrant versus NHER2 plus fulvestrant, NHER2 now su basically supplanting the PIK3CA inhibitor might be interesting in PIK3CA mutated patients. And then, you know, if alakestrin gets approved, certainly some combination trials with NHER2 would be interesting. Genetic counseling implications, we're going to talk about those with every tumor board in the future. I can tell you this patient had no significant family history. This is her first diagnosis at 84 years old, so really no genetic counseling implications here. We will have a genetic counseling in the future. The two people I had kind of fell through because it's very hard to have tumor boards like this. If you're affiliated with an institution, there's concerns with the institution. You can't really say stuff, and that's a bit of an issue. With that said, concluding remarks, low HER2, please, please, please realize this is a revolutionary new paradigm. If you have a loved one, that has breast cancer and they've told you they're HER2 negative, you need to now go revisit that. You need to say, wait a second, are they really HER2 negative or are they low HER2 positive? That has profound implications. Certainly DIH is going to be, is looking at low HER2 in the earlier settings also. So please, please, please find out if your loved one has low HER2 disease or truly is HER2 negative. In addition, please consider DIH for non-small cell lung cancer, breast, AML, T-cell lymphoma, HER3 positive solid tumors, FLT3, ITDML, bladder, et cetera. There are a lot of drugs on trials. They look quite promising. I think it's very impressive. Beware of patients with concurrent PIK3CA AKT mutations. 
AKT is downstream of PIK3CA. Remember that when you're using alpha in these patients. Consider PIK3CA and HER2 trials. That's you know something we'll just kind of forget. And HER2 will certainly push into stage four second line. I expect them to do the same thing that they did in HER2 positive disease where they pushed TDM1 out of second line. I think they're going to try and get into second line. They should always play chess against cancer and really, really consider doing this comment-based treatment cartography to really have a standardized approach to trying to integrate molecular profile-based regimens in the context of conventional therapies. Thank you for spending your Saturday with us. We will be back. These are my awesome. sons, sorry, twin boys when they were younger. My oh. favorite picture. Awesome. I think there is an audience question from Michael Rivera. Do you want to answer that? Oh uh, yeah, what's the question? Can you see it? Yeah, it's does the state of immune system among patients with similar HER2 expression levels affect the targeted therapy and its efficacy? So that's a, a very complicated question. I will say that immunotherapy in the context of stage four breast cancer hasn't really taken hold. Certainly it's not approved in hormone receptor positive disease. It's really only approved as Keytruda in patients who have pdl one positivity above 10% in triple negative disease. Tixcentric was approved in this setting, actually in that same setting, in the triple negative setting, and actually was pulled because real world evidence suggested it wasn't actually beneficial. So the answer, short answer to your question, Mike, is, is there, I, I think right now that answer is still not there yet. And I will say that immune therapy in the context of breast cancer just really hasn't taken hold yet. Right. In general, you're right. You know, HER2 uh, targeting, at least in other tumors, mutation-driven tumors, uh, using immunotherapy doesn't seem to work. And whether the immune system plays a role in response to anti-HER2-directed therapies, uh, that's an open research question. And I think uh, we just don't have the answer to that yet. But something interesting, something to look into as we move forward in targeting these patients and trying to leverage different molecules, different target uh, targeting molecules to come together to get combination therapies. That'll be an important question to answer. Yeah, Thank Ram, you. I'm seeing another question from Badresh, who's a very talented friend of mine. In the future, we're gonna have him actually talking in this panel. Uh, Michael's also, also tremendous. I've seen a lot from Mike. So he's asking about PIK3C inhibitors and so the safety profile. So it's an interesting question. I actually did an interview for targeted oncology on this very question. Certainly there's a lot of safety issues with PIK3C inhibitors. Idelalisib, Umbralisib, Duvalisib pulled off the market in part for safety, in part for lack of efficacy. Really Idelalisib actually tremendous efficacy in CLL, but pulled off because of safety. Umbralisib pulled off because overall survival really wasn't beneficial in CLL long-term and also safety. And Duvalisib also an issue with overall survival, just not really manifesting properly and also safety. So yes, Patrice, there are issues. I do find that PIC-Ray, because it's a PIC3CA inhibitor, not it really inhibits the alpha isoform, not delta, not gamma, not beta, I think there is some benefit there in, in, in terms of having lower toxicity. But I have had patients on this drug. It is difficult to tolerate. And so to your point, Badresh, I do think there are some issues with tolerability, although I think that alpalisib is better. Copenlisib also seems to be better tolerated, which is approved in follicular lymphoma. Okay, I have another thing I'm doing for patients, the weekly Q&A in two minutes. So I want to tell people, thank you so much for being here. Sorry about the technical difficulties. We absolutely will be having many, many people talk in the future. There will be much more audience participation. This was the initial inaugural, inaugural tumor board. It was an experiment. We will get better in time. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you in two weeks. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much, Basim and uh, Rob, for this one.